Hello, and welcome back to Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Our last episode ended in 2016 with the announcement that Essex Police would formally review its handling of the Shubury paedophile ring investigation in 1989-90. In this episode, we'll hear what happened when police took a second look at the scandal. But first, here's some background to that announcement. In 2012, Britain experienced its own precursor to the Me Too movement. After the death of oddball DJ and TV presenter Jimmy Savile, it emerged that during his lifetime, he'd been repeatedly reported to the police for sexual offences, but bureaucratic failures meant that he'd never faced justice. Publicity around the revelations provoked a tidal wave of historic allegations. More than 400 allegations were made about Savile alone. Then stories started pouring in about other celebrities and high-profile figures, and about institutional problems be it systemic abuse in children's homes or failures by police to properly investigate cases. By summer 2015, government had opened the National Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse, or ICSA. This reckoning over decades of sexual offending apparently missed, ignored or covered up by the authorities coincided with the introduction of new scrutiny measures for British police. Until 2012, Police forces had been scrutinised by police authorities, panels of local councillors with no particular expertise in law enforcement who met a few times a year for an hour or two and discussed some reports. But in 2012, police authorities were abolished and replaced by full-time, elected police and crime commissioners. In Essex, the public elected Nick Alston, a retired senior civil servant who'd spent decades in the Ministry of Defence. Upon taking office in 2012, Alston had made a commitment to transparency. He ordered the publication of quarterly reports into misconduct cases involving police officers and staff. He organised regular public meetings and live streams where the chief constable was required to answer unfiltered questions from the public. Here's what Alston told me in one interview. The whole point about police and crime commissioners is that we're getting away from the smoke-filled rooms where the the police authority would meet and have those discussions. Nobody would know anything about them. There was no reporting of them. No one was interested in them. But there was really important stuff being talked about them. It it allowed chief officers up and down the country to fail in some really bad ways. Since Alston had assumed office, shocking problems had been uncovered in one of the force's child abuse teams. An investigation called Operation Maple, saw 30 officers placed under investigation. Several quickly retired or resigned. Three were found to have committed misconduct, and five were found to have committed gross misconduct. Of those five, two left the force, one was sacked, and the final two were ultimately criminally convicted and jailed for deliberately sabotaging child abuse investigations. This was why, soon after retired NHS manager Robin Jamieson contacted me about the Shubury cover-up, I suggested that if ever there was a time for a new formal investigation, this was it. And Nick Alston, 
was the man to contact. Robin, and other Shubri whistleblowers he was in touch with, had tried over the years to get journalists to look into the case, but, given what had happened in 1989-90, they'd never really trusted the police. In Nick Austin, they had an alternative they'd never had before, the man who policed the police. Robin attended a meeting with Alston and told him the same story he'd told me. Alston found him eminently credible and asked him to come back and tell the story again, this time to the chief constable, Stephen Kavanagh, and one of his most senior sex crimes detectives, Chief Superintendent Tracy Harmon. That second meeting was arranged for February 2016. When Robin arrived for that February meeting, he brought two fellow Shubri whistleblowers with him, Jenny Grinstead, who'd worked at the Children's Society, and Rob West, who'd worked at the Rainer Project. On their way back from that meeting, Rob and Robin dropped in to visit me. They seemed upbeat. So they're actually wanting to look at the bones of whether there was an actual cover-up, whether it's an act of omission or commission. In other words, was it a cover-up or was it just incompetence? Here's an excerpt from the minutes of their meeting with the Chief Constable, written by a member of Nick Alston's staff. There are several references to a particular victim we've already heard about in previous episodes, whose name we're changing to Max to preserve his anonymity. Stephen Kavanagh asked whether any children had been abused by individuals other than Tanner and King. Rob West confirms that boys had said there were other abusers. Max told him that at least four other men had buggered him. Max had lifted his shirt and shown Rob West the scars on his body where he had cut himself and attempted to take his own life. Stephen Kavanagh said it was clear that in the 1980s and 90s, many agencies, including police, social services and health, were institutionally inept about issues such as racism and child abuse. Stephen Kavanagh asked how evidence of any wider paedophile ring could be unlocked. What might encourage the willingness of victims to come forward and give their accounts? Rob West said he thought there were victims who might be prepared to come forward. At the conclusion of that meeting, said the minutes, the following action points were drawn up. The allegations should be written up coherently and referred to ICSA. A targeted campaign should be launched to encourage victims to come forward. Attempts should be made to locate the notebook or diary seized during the 1989 raids, which had then reportedly gone missing from police custody. An attempt should be made to find the document the charity workers drew up with the NSPCC lawyer in 1990, recording their concerns. And Essex Police should provide monthly updates to the whistleblowers and their legal representatives. Less than two weeks after that meeting, I was invited to Nick Alston's office, where he made the announcement we heard at the end of episode 5. Essex Police was launching a formal review of the Shubury investigation. The public announcement would not be made until the following morning. The Yellow Advertiser, having unearthed the scandal, was being given a 24-hour head start. I interviewed Alston for an hour that morning, during which he said the Shubury case was the most important issue he'd worked on in his four years in office. Unless we understand our history, how can you really shape the, the right future? And I think this this is has the opportunity to do that. Do any any of us in this room? Do we any of us doubt that this wasn't going on all around the country? We see the horrors that have happened around the place, and then we we start to get a glimpse that it might have happened here. Then you, surely we've got an obligation, a real duty to 
turn that stone over and saying, are we sure it was done as well as possible? After that interview, I worked until long past midnight, producing five exclusive stories. They were published on the Yellow Advertiser website in the early hours of March 8, 2016. The reports broke the news of the Essex Police Review. That morning, the story was picked up by the national press. Then my office phone rang. It was the BBC. Now, was there a cover-up of abuse of children in care in Essex in the 1980s and 1990s? Well, that's the allegation from whistleblowers who say as many as 80 victims were ignored by authorities in Southend at the time. Essex Police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Throughout the spring months, I published exclusive stories on an almost weekly basis, trickling out the information I'd gathered over the past year to keep the story on the front page. I discovered one of the Shoebury ringleaders, Brian Tanner, had died ten years earlier from cancer, but Dennis King was alive, in his early 80s, living in Peterborough. After several weeks of reporting, I was told that five new complainants had come forward, triggering a new police investigation, which would run alongside the review into the old investigation. This new investigation would be called Operation Sands. It was a rare period of great hope for the Shoebury whistleblowers. This was the first time in 25 years that the authorities seemed to be taking it seriously. But that feeling of hope would not last. I later learned key witnesses, people whose names the police knew because they were contained within a small collection of documents from the original case handed over by Rob, Robin and Jenny, were never contacted by the officers conducting the review. One by one, over the following years, as I tracked down professionals who'd worked on the case, including a number who'd been integral to the charity response, they would look at me blankly and say, What review? For instance, here's what the charity worker Mr. X told me when I found him, months after the review had already concluded. I'm amazed that this Shrewsbury review thing has gone on and nobody's contacted me or my colleagues. It shows you how seriously they're taking it. The same level of seriousness that they were taking it last time. Or the conspiratorial view is that they're taking it very serious, and therefore they're very seriously trying to stop anything coming out. Chris Hickey who ran the Rayner Project in Southend and worked with the victims, was only interviewed after I tracked him down and he agreed to let me pass his number to the police. Nobody from Essex Police had contacted him prior to that. Those who were spoken to had their own concerns. The promised monthly updates for the whistleblowers never materialised. Then, when an officer working on the review met with Robin, he made what Robin thought was an alarming comment. And he said in the middle of talking about other things, this, this investigation isn't going anywhere. Months later, I attended a briefing with Chief Superintendent Tracy Harmon at Essex Police Headquarters, which was tape recorded with her consent. During the meeting, she made a comment which Chris Hickey and Rob West later strongly refuted. Two of the whistleblowers, Rob and Chris from Rainer Foundation, they they say that they spoke to kids who were involved with King and Tanner, who reported that there were other men involved. So if you don't have their original paperwork, is it not worth talking to them to try and find out who those other men were? 
we've we've taken statements off of Rob and of Chris, mm-hmm. so that isn't reflected in the evidence they've given us. How could this be? Tracy Harmon had been sat in the meeting with the chief constable, where Rob had told those present that one victim, Max, had been abused by six men at the same time. How could it be that Rob and Chris's evidence to the review directly contradicted the story they'd been telling for the last 25 years? When I asked Chris about the comment, this was his response. Ha! <laughs> yes! I, I, I... Well, it w- would. It, there's no recording of it. I haven't got a copy of what is alleged that I've written, but it's laughable. Matters were complicated for me and the Yellow Advertiser when Dennis King was arrested over the new allegations and released on bail. In Britain, we have a set of laws known as the Contempt of Court Act. Contempt laws ban the publication of any information which could pose a risk to the administration of justice. This includes prejudicial press coverage of an active case, which could influence would-be jurors in a potential trial. The moment at which a case becomes active is the moment at which a suspect is arrested. So whilst in one sense Dennis King's arrest was a victory for the Yellow Advertiser campaign, it was a two-edged sword. It meant that publishing any further stories about the Shubury Ring became a criminal offence, punishable by a prison sentence. Every day Dennis King spent on bail served as a gag on the press. The days turned into weeks. The weeks turned into months. Eventually, in autumn 2017, I was summoned to Essex Police Headquarters for another briefing with Tracy Harmon, which once again was tape-recorded with her consent. The review had concluded, I didn't find any evidence of any corruption. I think we would all think that all agencies now are far more developed in our response to child abuse. So that's very, very different, though, to evidence of actual corruption. But what about the campaign of threats and intimidation towards the charity workers? Was that just evidence of outdated working practices and institutional naivety? In fairness to Essex Police, at this time... Even I hadn't seen a lot of the paperwork which would subsequently flesh out the timeline of the original investigation. Meetings with NSPCC lawyers, threats of a hatchet job on the charity workers, sources claiming they'd been beaten up by the police, children all seeing the same police officer going in and out of Dennis King's flat. I hadn't yet tracked down the sources who possessed a lot of this documentary evidence. But why hadn't the police? Just how thorough had this review really been? In my 2016 briefing with Tracy Harmon, she had been clear that the police had little to go on. Trying to find records has been a a, a difficulty, which we knew it would have. Probably only about 10 or 15 years ago, policies were changed where we keep our records now a lot longer, but we didn't used to keep them as long back then. So finding records has been a little bit uh, difficult. What we don't have is a complete picture, I won't lie. We don't have full records from a police perspective of exactly what was done, but what we do have is um, an old account on Holmes, and Holmes is our major incident recording system. For whatever reason, a number of crucial witnesses had never been contacted to participate in the review. Witnesses I would later track down and discover were sitting on a gold mine of information and documentary evidence. 
As a result, the review had relied almost exclusively on a small number of records salvaged from a rudimentary version of a police computer system. Was it any wonder, asked Robin, that there was no evidence of corruption stored on there? If there is corruption, they're not going to put it on record if they could help it. They're not going to put it on the police computer. It would be more than a year later that the Yellow Advertiser would uncover and publish evidence of Shubury ringleader Dennis King's apparent status as a registered police informant. There was more bad news at the October 2017 briefing, this time regarding Operation Sands. We did have some allegations that were made. Hence, we then went into an investigation mode, so we did launch an investigation, which led to the arrest of one chap. That investigation had quite a lot of different facets to it, quite a lot of inquiries to it, which is why it's taken quite a long time, which is not unusual for historic abuse claims. But sadly, as a result of that, we've not been able to get sufficient evidence to actually charge him, so he's been um, finalised with no further action taken. We're not able to proceed with any prosecution, which is disappointing. Now, who made the decision that the evidence was not there for a charge? Was that a police decision or CPS decision? Police decision. Earlier this week, Essex Police released the following statement about the 2016-17 review. In February 2016, Essex Police launched a review of the previous investigation into allegations of historic child sexual abuse. During the course of that review, specialist detectives from our child abuse investigations team carried out extensive inquiries, interviewing numerous witnesses and people who came forward to tell us they had been abused. Sadly, despite extensive investigation, this had not resulted in criminal charges. If anyone has further evidence in connection with this or any other investigation, we need them to come forward to us. You can contact Essex Police on 101 or Crime Stoppers anonymously on 0800. Five 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 one one one. But I had something up my sleeve, or more accurately, in my bag, which would send the police back into investigation mode. In spring 2017, I'd received an interesting phone call. You don't know me, but you were investigating the child thing in Shubury Ness. I was one of the victims, and I recently had the police come round. The man on the other end of the line was upset. He told me that he was in a long-term relationship with a woman. They lived together, and the police had failed to check whether anybody was in earshot before they started asking him questions. I don't have a telly in my front room. My partner just overheard it. I consider myself quite a strong guy, but when I said the names, I just burst out crying in front of him. My head is scrambled. They might as well have just thrown a grenade through my window, and they were so blasé about it. Since then, my whole life has fallen apart. Throughout the Yellow Advertiser's subsequent reporting, this man would be referred to by the codename Victim 6, because to our knowledge at the time, he was the sixth complainant with whom the police had engaged in the renewed investigation. We'll keep the codename Victim 6 for this podcast. Victim 6 had wondered why police were knocking on his door and asking him questions about his childhood abuse 30 years later. He wasn't computer literate, but his partner had done a search and found all my yellow advertiser stories from before King's arrest. He told me that he'd called me to try to find out more about what was going on. He couldn't decide whether or not to cooperate with the police. Several things about their approach had upset him. One was the insensitivity of blurting out their belief that he'd been sexually abused 
within earshot of his partner. Another was the way they seemed to bristle and change subject every time he started talking about abusers other than Dennis King and Brian Tanner. Victim 6 told me he could remember 11 people who'd abused him. One of them had been a policeman. I'm remembering other scenarios that have happened. I can remember being in the company of a police officer. I was in a police officer's front room, but basically she's only investigating King. All she wants to do is bang on about King. I told Victim 6 that the only way to achieve any formal resolution would be to cooperate with the police, but he said that in the meantime, as he made his mind up, he'd rather speak to me. Over the summer, we spoke frequently. Like many of the boys who'd entered Dennis King's orbit, I learned he'd wound up there as a result of unfortunate domestic circumstances. I was running away from home because I was getting physically abused by my mum and her partner. Basically, it was somewhere to stay for the night. My friends seemed to know him, so it seemed all right. Victim 6 and other young runaways would congregate at the seafront to cheat in the amusement arcades using a method called strimming to win money which they could then use for food or drink. Unfortunately, their stomping ground was also King and Tanner's. You get like a strimmer wire off of the lawnmower and you stick it down the fruit machine and you can clock up credits, and then you can get a win, and that would be your money for the day. Dennis King would go up and down the seafront in his car, and it would be like 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. He couldn't really understand how King always seemed to know where to find the boys. He still suspects King had a network of tipsters. It's the only explanation that makes any sense to him. He would just appear from nowhere. You would just be minding your own business, and then bang, they would just appear. When Dennis King was alone, he used a softer approach to coax boys back to his flat. He would offer to buy the young runaways some food or drink, then offer them a lift somewhere, or suggest that they stay in his flat rather than spending the night in the cold. If King was with Brian Tanner, things were often more aggressive, although King would try to calm Tanner down. He was quite violent, Brian. Like, rough, he'd hit you. But then, and this is the weirdest thing, Dennis always seemed to be like as if he didn't agree with it. He was a smart paedophile, so you almost feel it's a really weird thing, because you almost feel, like, grateful that he stopped it, that he's doing the same thing to you. It's really complicated. See, King was more clever about it. He would, like, give you money, or it was like he was doing you a favour. Victim 6's memory of the two men's conflicting personalities was later corroborated by a document I was shown. Authored in May 1990 by the charity workers, it read, King used to warn kids not to go with Tanner, as he would give them a bashing and then sexually assault them. His memory of Dennis King's flat and car also corroborated what I'd already been told. I noticed he had a fruit machine in his bedroom. His flat was posh, tiny, loads of drink near a bar type thing, not much to sit on. He had a Jaguar. This matched what Rob West had been told by victims in 1989. The optics in the flat, the posh car parked outside. A second source, who lived on the estate, later also told me that King had driven a Jag, whilst a third, another victim, said they thought it had been a Daimler that looked almost identical to a Jag. Victim 6 also remembered a young woman who he was sure had been linked in some way to Dennis King. He believed that King had supplied her with drugs, and his theory was that in turn, she may have supplied him with boys. 
Many of the boys who had hung around King's flat had also hung around this young woman's flat. There was always police going to her house. A police officer, till early forties, used to have sex with Susie and other young females. There was a couple of young girls there that Susie used to have and she would encourage sexual activity with them. We heard about Susie in earlier episodes, but crucially, at the time that Victim 6 began telling me about Susie, about the drugs, about the visits from police officers for sex with underage girls, I had never heard of Susie. I had never seen any of the paperwork which would later corroborate what Victim 6 was telling me. He was giving me first-hand testimony, which I would only later find out directly matched what the charity workers had reported almost 30 years earlier. Victim 6 possessed information which had never been placed in the public domain. When I was eventually granted access to some source's paperwork, I would discover no less than six documents from the original Shubury investigation in which Victim 6's name appeared. Other children had named Victim 6 at the time as somebody they had seen in the company of King, Tanner, and the Shubury paedophile ring. Victim 6 was one of those dozens of suspected victims whose name had been on the list provided to police and social services 30 years earlier. In autumn 2017, I received a tip-off that police were going to close down Operation Sands. When I was invited to the briefing with Chief Superintendent Harmon, I already knew what was coming. When Victim 6 had next telephoned me, I'd told him what I'd heard was about to happen. He was surprised. He knew, as I did, that there had been five new complainants. He hadn't thought that the police would need him. This changed everything. If abusers remained on the street, posing a continuing risk to children, when his cooperation could have put those abusers behind bars, that was something the victim six did not want on his conscience. He told me he'd changed his mind. He was willing to cooperate with the police, after all. Given his lack of computer skills, he asked me to help him draft a letter to the officer in charge of the investigation, summarising his allegations and expressing his willingness to cooperate. So during the briefing with the chief superintendent, right after I'd been told that the investigation was being closed down, I pulled Victim 6's memo out of my bag. I've spoken to one of the people that was spoken to. His name is... Then he contacted me after he was contacted by the police. He told me that he named other men who were involved. So he's asked me to ask you... Uh, whether you're still looking into the allegations that you've made. He's also asked me to give you a letter. He's basically saying he's fully willing to, you know, cooperate. A week later, Essex Police's press office confirmed that the investigation was back on. In the next episode, we'll hear how Victim 6's memories uncovered a shocking link to one of the UK's most notorious murder cases. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. 
From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.